Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. As part of our recent series of online offerings, the Emergence Magazine Book Club spent the month of April reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's celebrated, best-selling book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. For the book club's last meeting, Robin joined us in a vibrant live video Zoom conversation hosted by acclaimed writer Robin McFarlane. Responding to questions asked by readers from around the globe, Robin discussed dandelions as global citizens, the role of the writer as a conduit for story, and the spirit of reciprocity that lies at the heart of our relationship to place. It was just a conversation that was too rich not to be shared on our podcast. You're all here to, to, to speak to and, and hear from Robin. So that's where we will go now. She's a writer who I am honored to be in the presence of. Her work is always urgent and perhaps in this strange moment we're living through now, uh, ever more so, I think. So it has an ethic of community, of kindness, of gift, of generosity. It uh, speaks of a grammar of animacy and it has a vision of reciprocity and these are the things we need powerfully and keenly now so i'm sure they will be among our subjects this evening so robin it is an honor to share space or share time across space with you um welcome and we would love to hear from you ah thank you so much rob i likewise am honored to be with you thank you for agreeing to do this um <laughs> and i Yes, we always begin in the Potawatomi way with our protocol greeting in, in our beautiful endangered language. So let me say to all of you, uh, bojo, uh, respectful greetings. Shabadas gegish kokwe nadejnikas, bodwe wad mikoyenda, megazedo dem minwa makodo dem, mikwech kinugego gamijang. And in that, that beautiful language of my ancestors, I simply gave greetings to all of you and, and gratitude for all the gifts that we have been given, especially in this moment, this gift of being together in these uncertain and anxious times. And it is, for me, really strengthening to, to, to be together in a, in a like-minded community. I also want to say, of course, thank you to Emergence for all of the work in creating community, not just this book group, but when you look, there's so many. I know I was signing up for them like crazy, <laughs> including Rob's uh, coming up as well. Um, so it is a wonderful opportunity to, to create community while we are, are, are sheltered in, in place. Um, so all, all gratitude. Um, I think I should also say that I live here in upstate New York in what I think of as Maple Nation. As I look out my window, I don't, there are no leaves on the maple trees yet, but they're on their way. Um, birds are singing, all the spring ephemerals are coming up in the woods. And uh, 
that that has been a great joy and solace to me in this time of 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 uncertainty and and anxiety and i think i felt the absolutely most grounded and maybe you have this in common as well when i went out and planted peas somehow just getting my fingers in the dirt and having that sense of of trust in seeds of those famous words of faith in seeds um was was a real comfort to me um usually i don't spend too much time really noticing you know the on the back of the seed packet where it tells you how many days until you have something to eat i was looking at those <laughs> in the in the urgent time so as i was trying to think of what to to share together um I thought I would read a bit from the chapter Epiphany in the Beans about the comfort and the responsibilities of, of the garden. I was hunting among the spiraling vines that enveloped my teepees of pole beans, lifting the dark green leaves to find handfuls of pods, long and green, firm and furred with tender fuzz. I snapped them off where they hung in slender twosomes, bit into one and tasted nothing but August, distilled into pure, crisp beaniness. This summer abundance is destined for the freezer to emerge again in deep midwinter when the air tastes only of snow. By the time I finished searching through just one trellis, my basket was already full. To go and empty it in the kitchen, I stepped between heavy squash vines and around tomato plants fallen under the weight of their fruit. They sprawled at the feet of the sunflowers, whose heads bowed with the weight of maturing seeds. Lifting my basket over the rows of potatoes, I noticed an open furrow, revealing a nest of redskins where the girls left off harvesting that morning. I kicked some soil over them so the sun wouldn't green them up. Now they complain about garden chores, as kids are supposed to do. But, you know, once they get caught up in the softness of the dirt and the smell of the day, and it's hours later when they come back into the house. Seeds for this basket of beans were poked into the ground by their fingers back in May. Seeing them plant and harvest makes me feel like a good mother, teaching them how to provide for themselves. The seeds, though, we did not provide for ourselves. When Sky Woman buried her beloved daughter in the earth, the plants that are special gifts to the people sprang from her body. Her heart gave us the strawberry. Her breast grew corn. From her belly, the squash. And we see in her hands the long-fingered clusters of beans. How do I show my girls I love them on a morning in June? We pick wild strawberries. On a February afternoon, we build snowmen and sit by the fire. In March, we make maple syrup. We pick violets in May, go swimming in July, and on an August night, we lay out on blankets and watch meteor showers. In November, that great teacher, the woodpile, comes into our lives. And that's just the beginning. How do we show our children our love, each in our own way, by shower of gifts? and a heavy rain of lessons. Maybe it was the smell of ripe tomatoes or the Orioles singing or that certain slant of light on a yellow afternoon and the beans hanging thick around me. 
It just came to me in a wash of happiness that made me laugh out loud, startling the chickadees who were picking at the sunflowers, raining black and white hulls on the ground. I knew it with a certainty as warm and clear as the September sunshine, that the land loves us back. She loves us with beans and tomatoes and with roasting ears and blackberries by a shower of gifts and a heavy rain of lessons. She provides for us, teaches us to provide for ourselves. That's what good mothers do. I looked around at the garden. I could feel her delight in giving us these beautiful raspberries, squash, basil, potatoes, lettuce, kale, beets, peppers, parcel spouts. I could go on. It reminded me of my little girl's answers to how much do I love you? This much, they would say, with arms stretched wide. And that's really why I had my daughters learn to garden, so they'd always have a mother to love them, long after I'm gone. The epiphany in the beans. I spend a lot of time thinking about our relationships with land, how we're given so much, and what we might give back. I try to work through the equation of reciprocity and responsibility, the whys and wherefores of building sustainable relationships with ecosystems, all in my head. But suddenly there was no intellectualizing, there's no rationalizing here, just the pure sensation of baskets full of mother love, the ultimate reciprocity. Now, the plant scientist who sits at my desk and wears my clothes and sometimes borrows my car, she might cringe to hear me assert that a garden is a way that the land says, I love you. Isn't it supposed to be just a matter of increasing net primary productivity of the artificially selected domesticated genotypes, manipulating environmental conditions through input of labor and materials to enhance yield? Adaptive cultural behaviors that produce a nutritious diet and increase individual fitness will be selected for. What's love got to do with that? If a garden thrives, it loves you? If a garden fails, do you attribute potato blight to a withdrawal of affection? Do unripe peppers signal a rift in the relationship? I have to explain things to her sometimes. Gardens are simultaneously a material and a spiritual undertaking. And that's hard for scientists so fully brainwashed by Cartesian dualism to grasp. Well, how would you know it's love and not just good soil, she asks. Where's the evidence? What are the key elements for detecting this loving behavior? Well, that's easy. Nobody would ever doubt that I love my children. And even a most quantitative psychologist would find no fault with my list of loving behaviors, which include nurturing health and well-being, protection from harm, encouraging individual growth and development, the desire to be together, the generous sharing of resources, working together for a common goal, celebration of shared values, interdependence, sacrifice for one another, and the creation of beauty. Now, if we observe those behaviors between humans, we would conclude she loves that person. 
You might also observe these actions between a person and a bit of carefully tended ground and say, she loves that garden. Why then, seeing this list, would you not make the leap to say that the garden loves her back? The exchange between plants and people has shaped the evolutionary history of both. Farms, orchards, and vineyards are stocked with species we have domesticated. Our appetite for their fruits lead us to till, prune, irrigate, fertilize, and weed on their behalf. Perhaps they have domesticated us. Wild plants have changed to stand in well-behaved rows, and wild humans have changed to settle alongside the fields and care for the plants. It has been a kind of mutual taming. We are linked in a co-evolutionary circle. The sweeter the peach, the more frequently we disperse its seeds, nurture its young, and protect them from harm. Food plants and people act as selective forces on each other's evolution. The thriving of one is in the best interest of the other. And this, to me, sounds a lot like love. I once sat in a graduate writing workshop on relationships to the land. The students all demonstrated a deep respect and affection for nature, and they said that this was the place where they experienced the greatest sense of belonging and well-being. They professed without reservation that they loved the earth. And so then I asked them, do you think that the earth loves you back? And no one was willing to answer that. It was as if I brought a two-headed porcupine into the classroom, unexpected and prickly. They all backed away. Here was a room full of writers passionately wallowing in unrequited, unspoken love. So I made it hypothetical and I asked, well, what do you suppose would happen if people believed this crazy notion that the earth loved them back? and the floodgates opened, they all wanted to talk at once. We were suddenly off the deep end, heading for world peace and perfect harmony. One student summed it up, you wouldn't harm what gives you love. Knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. I wonder if much that ails our society stems from the fact that we have allowed ourselves to be cut off from the love of and from the land. It's medicine for broken land and for empty hearts. Of course, much of what fills our mouths is taken forcibly from the earth. That form of taking does no honor to the farmer, no honor to the plants, or to the disappearing soil. It's hard to recognize food that is mummified in plastic, bought and sold. How do we see it as a gift anymore? Everybody knows you can't buy love. In a garden, food arises from partnership. 
if I don't pick rocks and if I don't pull weeds, I'm not fulfilling my end of the bargain. I can do these things with my handy opposable thumb, my capacity to use tools to shovel manure, but I can no more create a tomato or embroider a trellis in beans than I can turn lead into gold. That is the plant's responsibility and their gift, animating the inanimate. Now there is a gift. People often ask me what one thing I would recommend to restore relationship between land and people. My answer is almost always plant a garden. It's good for the health of the earth and it's good for the health of people. A garden is a nursery for nurturing connection. It is the soil for cultivation of a practical kind of reverence. And its power goes far beyond the garden gate. Once you develop a relationship with a little patch of earth, it too becomes a seed. Something essential happens in a vegetable garden. It's a place where if you can't say, I love you out loud, you could say it in seeds and the land will reciprocate in beans. Robin, thank you, thank you. How wonderful to hear you speak that aloud, speak it into the air and to share it across the world uh, so it's that was beautiful and the, the 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 comments are are responding to that from from all over the globe uh, i I, sh- I should just say that in in britain uh, here during the pandemic we've had a a convention whereby at eight o'clock on thursday evenings people clap and cheer for and rattle pans they stand on their doorsteps and make noise for the carers of the country who are at risk, but also extending their powers of healing and, and care and kindness. Um, I was unable to take part in that because because I was here with you, but I just wanted to mention it because it, it seems to me an example of, we're talking uh, a lot at the moment about hurt and harm, but there is a, there is a great deal of, of wonder at work in this moment too, um, of mutualism, of reciprocity, uh, of forms of, of of kindness and community creation and, and kinship that that didn't exist beforehand. So, I guess I, I don't want to confine our discussion within the pandemic because there it is. So it it, it lives so much before and will live after it as well. But I, I wanted to begin by asking you about about mutualism and kindness at this moment. Uh, how how you perceive it? Uh, have you perceived it? And how where where you have found it? Where the garden has grown? in this moment? Mm. It's a wonderful question that has occupied so much of my thought. In the way of thinking about the moment that we are in, which is of course a moment of fear and anxiety and suffering for so many, that highlights inequality, that highlights the ways that we have gone astray, but also allows us to be that those deeply human people of kindness and courage and and mutually support uh, mutual support i've thought many times that that what this time feels like to me is what in um in Potawatomi cultures we might call ceremony time it's a t- sort of a timeless 
time. It's a time when the physical starts to fall away and what is really important, the internal springs of resilience and humanity are able to be more visible and more active in the world when the body and the material quiets down. And that's very much what this feels like um, in good moments. Sometimes it's not like that at all. <laughs> but in those transcendent moments, like this is a moment of possibility of of reimagining of, of remembering that when we stand outside and and beat the the pots in 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 gratitude when we reach out to neighbors and far away friends um we're we're reuniting um what's with what's really most important to us mm-hmm. and in that i find uh, great hope mm-hmm. uh, that this that this moment on the other side of this moment, we know we will be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we collectively um, will be different. And um, that we know that we have a role in reimagining what that new world on the other side will look like. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, beating the pots in gratitude is a lovely phrase for it. And that, that everyday utensil with which we cook our food and uh, and 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 make our make make our communities is is being used to extend that in a much broader and, and stranger way than we could ever have foreseen. I, I, there are so many questions queuing up. I, I do want to ask you one more. We we were corresponding a little before this event, and you you said something so fascinating again, arising from the pandemic context. But but I think speaking back to this embedded interest we both share in. In, in grammars of animacy, in ways in which the, the realm or the domain of life can be extended beyond its usual hardened parameters to, um, to creaturely life, indeed to what, uh, what we might in, 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 the, in, the, in the hard grammar of English call the, 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 the non-life of matter, but which in Tawatomi is recognized as, as living, as, as animate. And you said something absolutely fascinating. You said, the pandemic has had me thinking a great deal about how the vulnerability our species is experiencing could be an opening to imagining the threat and constriction that is the reality for so many other species and often at our hands. And then you said, what about their grief in the chestnut blight or salamander epidemics? This was so fascinating to me. And I wonder if you could just unfold a little more around that thought for us. I would like to do that very much, um, almost as a, a translation, if you will, from the birds that are you know, singing so bountifully and joyfully outside at this moment, as if the crises and the suffering that we were um, experiencing was invisible to them. That disconnect really got me to thinking about what are they talking about? What, what have they got to say and feeling that suddenly that the vulnerability that that we feel both about our health and our community health and our food supply and and well-being all those anxieties and vulnerabilities that we we feel we set aside almost our human exceptionalism to say oh, we could be we are now feeling what it is like to be biologically vulnerable and then I listened to those robins in the tree and realized that they are biologically vulnerable every single day. The constriction that we feel, um, they feel every day as their 
habitats shrink as ours have shrunk the the expansiveness of their relationships the well-being of their families this is a reality that they live with all of the time um, not only from of course habitat fragmentation climate change degradation we have that long list that we all know by heart but also especially i think as a, maybe it's front front and center in my mind as a as a native person for whom the notion of epidemics and their consequences is, feels very close um, to think about that the grief of chestnuts um, when the when the blight hit the chestnuts to the point that they are functionally extinct did anyone think about their vulnerability about their grief how did they experience the the truncation of possibility of even being alive. Um, the bats that, um, you know, experiencing mass die-offs from white-nose syndrome, the salamanders from acid rain, suddenly I, I, I just had this notion that perhaps people could expand from our own sense of vulnerability to grow ecological compassion for the vulnerability that we have created for others. And out of that compassion for those more than human persons, might that be a transformation that we see on the other side of this? And how might we propel such a transformation? Yes, I think propulsion will be needed for every change. There is um, no sense in which, in which good will be given to us on the other side of this. I think there will be so many fights by, by tired people um, but they, they, there is opportunity, but it, but it will, it, it, it will lie in the, in the detail, in the granular hard work uh, of pushing for change, but that can be done. Um, there, are, there are questions pouring in, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to step aside and, and, and voice, voice some of them from, from your many readers here. And I'm going to bundle two together because I think they, uh, they're, they're really uh, the same question in a way. So Lisa Bethencourt, has asked uh, on on the chat will you speak a little about the idea of time as circular as opposed to to moving in only one direction and that 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 echoes a question that had come in beforehand from somebody else involved in the book group uh, marcy who asks who quotes you if time is a turning circle there is a place where history and prophecy converge the footprints of first man lie on the path behind us and on the path ahead and Marcy asks, can you talk about this in the context of our current upending times? So you could take any, any aspect of that, Robin. Mm. Mm. You know, thinking about time, particularly as a, a scientist, uh, let me begin there, when I'm used to graphing time as a linear function, right? As if that's the way it, it was a material reality that unfolds um, in that way. And in the Western world, we have that notion of the dominant metaphor for time, passage of time, being time is a river, right? That goes on in this, in this line. Whereas in the indigenous view, time is, is understood not as a river, but as a lake, in, or maybe an ocean, um, in which all things that ever have been and ever will be, and the forces that move them are all resident 
in there. And, and so all things are, are happening and connected to one another um, in, a, in a circular and, and uh, a filigree, really, of, of interrelationships, which is so counter to the way that the scientific worldview deems it linear. And so how does that relate to our, to our current moment? That notion of time being a circle means, of course, the, the unawareness of, of recurring patterns, recurring opportunities to learn. Sometimes we have to learn the same lessons over and over again, and they're, they're taught us in different ways. We experience them in, in different ways. And so the, the passage that was referred to really talks about um, this notion of, of the time of the seventh fire, teaching, a prophetic teaching in Potawatomi uh, cultures about how when we come to the fork in the road, um, when we have to choose between the, that soft green path and the burnt path that lie ahead of us, that we don't go forward in a line, that what we are to do is to circle back, to circle back and pick up those things that we left behind, those things that are still present in that lake of time, but we are to retrieve them um, and carry them with us. And these, are, of course, are the, are the teachings of gratitude and, and reciprocity and relations with the land and, and, and so many more. It's that, that notion, though, of circling back because those things are not lost. They're still there. They're below the surface. And our capacity as humans to bring them up to the surface again um, to wake them up is 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 part of our work and um, as I say that Rob I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how in your wonderful book Underland which has been much on my mind during this time of 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 how do we resurface how do we what do we bring up from the darkness and and from antiquity I think that has a very almost circular notion of time as well in your book. Thank you, thank you. Yes, there's, a, there's one line in Underland, to, to understand the light we need first to have been buried in the deep down dark. And um, that, that feels, we are being buried now, but there are lessons as so often in, in underworld stories from indigenous cultures and, and classical myth, it's often the place that one goes to and, and if, one, if one can return from it, you return with, with knowledge. Um, there are there are many questions coming in on, on comments and on the on the Q and A, which uh, which circle the question of anxiety on the part of non-indigenous people at at, at learning from um, and in some sense benefiting from indigenous cultures and their 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 practices and their knowledge. And I, I think people would really value, particularly people who have who have gained so much in in the best sense of gain from from your book at this time if you might speak a little about about that i'm sure it's something you're asked often about um how so teresa for example asked how can we first generation immigrants refugees settlers avoid imposter syndrome in our new home in our new home landscapes how can we connect with the land in meaningful and reciprocal ways what are, what are the pitfalls to to avoid and there are a number on the on the on the questions that that circle similar anxieties. Mm. I'm always grateful 
for that question being posed and and because we we have front of mind the the dangers of cultural appropriation of telling stories that are not our own and those are very real and need to be respected and i think one of the ways to navigate that territory of learning without appropriating of becoming at home on stolen land comes in the words of um, truth and reconciliation. I think about the truth and reconciliation processes that have been born all around the world, really again and again, and I'm thinking about the truth and reconciliation processes with um, Indigenous nations, First Nations in, in Canada and here in the United States, and the first word there is truth, right? That, that how do we navigate this territory to tell the truth, to recognize, to combat erasure of history and ownership and colonial imposition, the imperialism of, of, of burying a whole way of being and way of relating to the land. You tell the truth about that um, and you bring it to the surface. You own that truth and only then can reconciliation happen. So things like the land acknowledgement movement is, I think, really important um, to be able to know whose territory, whose homeland are you standing on, are you living on at, at this moment, and to ask yourself the question of, um, in return for that, that deep and painful history, acknowledgement of that, of that history, what am I called to do? How am I called to live well in this place so that I am not repeating um, imperialism and I'm not repeating colonial structures, but and am in fact working to build a relationship with place that, that honors the ancestors of this place and honors the land and, you know, also acknowledges the fact of, I was writing a piece about this not long ago, about to remember that, that first the truth that all settlers were indigenous someplace, you know, it is, it is the land which teaches us this. It it's not, doesn't come with a chromosome. It's being open to the land, to being taught by the land, to coming into, into relationship. So there's, there's, there's that piece. And now I forgot what the second piece was. <laughs> I went to uh, no matter. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's very very helpful. I think I think people will be really grateful to to hear you explore that a little more. Um, there there are what, questions coming in about scale uh, and also context for healing practices of relationships with with place. So a number of questions are circling the idea of of the city. Uh, there's a question coming in from Bahrain, which is. Uh, saying that the, the, the relationship with, with the land is very thin there in a predominantly urbanized and, and, and uh, otherwise problematic uh, society. Uh, and there's a question about rewilding in, in, in Britain and how one might continue to include the human even as one is nourishing and healing the earth. That comes from Mike Winter. Uh, so I, I perhaps if we start in the city, uh, I wonder if you, you, you might talk a little about how... how the, the kinds of, of wisdom and, and practice that you describe and admire uh, and, uh, and, and share, give to us, can, can function in, in urban settings as well. 
I'm sure there are wonderful examples of them doing so. Yeah. Um, this is the moment at which I really wish this was a two-way conversation. Um, I wish it anyway, but in particular, because as a person who has lived all my life in the countryside, um, I have so little familiarity with ways of being in the city that I want to learn from urban dwellers of how you do this. Um, <laughs> Because for me to go out and have a garden or to rewild this patch or to steward this this stream, um, that feels like a very natural way to engage and 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 care for place. But then I think about living in a mega city. How do these ideas translate? And the closest that that I can come, and I I, I would like to know whether this is feasible in uh, for for those of you who experience this, is could the teachings of the honorable harvest, which grow out of intimate relationship with land, don't they transcend scale? Don't they transcend that urban-rural boundary that if we want to, we have to take, right? We have to consume because we're animals, um, but can we consume in such a way that does honor to the land and um, honor to ourselves at the same time? And cities have been called analogous to heterotrophic organisms. Cities are consumers, that's, and they are, they are fed by the producing lands around them, right? Um, so the way in which people consume in cities, the levels at which they consume, can that be that that line back to the productive landscape to take only what you need, um, to not waste what you have? All of these guidelines of of the honorable harvest um, can be manifest in a sense of in the choices that we make for consumption. And while I say that, and this is where I, I really feel like it's such an inadequate answer, is that it is, it is a position of privilege to say that I am going to choose how to consume, um, that I'm only going to consume with honor. Um, and there's a lot of ways what, what that might mean. Um, and and that, is, that is a perspective of, of, of someone with the privilege of plenty to eat and surplus. Um, and so in that way, I know it's a, a highly inadequate answer and I, I want to learn what are the ways that we can practice this in the city. Thank you. I will, I will just very briefly say that in Sheffield, uh, one, of, one of our cities here, that there was a, a campaign, organized campaign to resist the planned felling of up to 17,000 street trees within the city. So a real uh, thinning of the, the, the wildwood canopy within the city, as it were. And an extraordinary campaign grew among the, among the citizenry of Sheffield to resist this uh, council-mandated felling. And it, it, it really seemed to me at the time to perform many of the kinds of response and, and reciprocity and even grammars of animacy that, that you have written about. People involved in the campaign began to recognize trees as their neighbors, as their co-citizenry within that city. They began to recognize not only the ecosystem services that the trees provided to them in the form of shade, pollution, dampening, and, uh, and, and, but also the profound spiritual good that comes from living with trees in an urban setting. And these, these things became 
deeply ingrained in the nature of the resistance and in, the, as it were, the, the metaphysics of the resistance. It was an absolutely extraordinary uh, moment spread over two and a half years by some very, very brave people who were not at all campaigners by, by training or by, by nature. And they, they, they won, basically, in the end as well, they won. So, yes, it was, it was thrilling. Um, I'm going to ask a question from uh, from India now. Uh, it's a different kind of question. It's from a, a young naturalist who, whose work I know uh, and admire very much, Yuvan Aves, who is also, like you, an educator and a, and a teacher. Yuvan uh, stayed up very late to listen to us. This came in beforehand, so I'll just re- read it to you. The, the question's at the end, but there's a little bit of context. Uh, Robin, I'm part of running the Songlines Farm School, an alternative education space in South India. Since last year, before the paddy harvest, we teachers and students gather to read the Honourable Harvest Code and the story of the corn spirit. Following this, we spend some time reflecting on them and sharing our thoughts. It's proven to be a beautiful orientation before the fieldwork. My question to you is uh, what you thought about while weaving together the stories in Braiding Sweetgrass. Were there other plants which you were considering as potent metaphors for your own form and practice as a writer alongside Sweetgrass, which could have held these stories together in their own and different ways? Yuvan. Beautiful question. And I love the image of calling forward those ideas before planting. Um, thank you no. for that. Yeah. I think that probably, I'm thinking of, of some of the writing that I've been doing recently and, and, and plants that um, to me are great teachers. And, and it's appropriate, I think, to answer a question from farmers and gardeners by talking about weeds. Um, I think because we are a global community this afternoon, evening, morning, wherever it is that you <laughs> I'll bet that you walked by a dandelion today. <laughs> yes? Um, yes, dandelions as, as global citizens, and I think global teachers. Our relationship to what people say the humble dandelion, I say the mighty, the magnificent dandelion, is um, is um, really telling about the different worldviews and, and our, our notions of plants and, and who we want to be around us and who we don't. Um, so thinking about the dandelion as medicine with that beautiful big taproot, right? Um, mm-hmm self-medicine, but it's also medicine for the land. Um, and that that's what I was writing about in the, in the dandelion is that it is medicine for us, but that deep taproot is also recycling minerals, of course, that were taken below the rooting zone, bringing them back up in order to share with the rest of the, of the, of the community. So dandelions as transcending earth and, and, and sun as being these powerful medicines, not only for our bodies, but medicine for land and in reshaping are thinking about dandelions or, or other so-called weeds, um, we might reshape our entire relationship with the living world. That's a wonderful answer. And there is a lot of love coming in on the chat for dandelions. (laughs) Many people are waving at their dandelions around the world. Uh, One of the reasons I love, I love dandelions apart from 
there are many, many names in, in, in English um, and, and in French. Uh, Don de Lyon, uh, that's where we get our dandelion from, is from the French Don de Lyon, which means teeth of the lion because of the jagged tooth-like serrated leaves of the dandelion. So, and, uh, but also they are such a wonderful food source for early emerging pollinators in this country. So because they, they, they flower so early, and they're there for those first bees that, that crawl out when the first warmth comes after, after winter, even before spring has started. So there they are giving, giving to those bees in their befuddled <laughs> state as they emerge. Um, they're, 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 they're vital. Um, like that's you, a wonderful I, I love the names for dandelions as well and and i thought sure when you mentioned the french you were going to go to that wonderful uh peace on lee for dandelions uh, relating to its powerful medicinal properties in, indeed indeed <laughs> solving problems for many millennia uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I i want to ask about as uh, a sort of uh, uh, going from the specific of the dandelion out to back back to roles. Um, there's a line in, in Richard Powers's great novel, The Overstory. I know you and Richard were due to be in conversation, but the pandemic, I think, made that impossible, if I understand correctly. Um, he, there's a, probably the most quoted line from The Overstory is something like, um, an argument never changed anyone's mind. The only way to do that is a good story. Uh, and there's a question second on the on the list here from Mary Grace Batulfo saying, what, what do you see as the role of writers at this time for those of us who write fiction as well as nonfiction and poetry? So a huge question, but I, I, I wonder if I might ask it of you on behalf of, of everyone. Of all, of all the writers. I don't know necessarily that our role as writers is different in this time. To me, to be to have the privilege of carrying story, of being a conduit for story and being a translator in a sense is, is always there. Um, I think perhaps the particular role of a writer in this moment is to help share the experience that we who are sheltered in place, isolated wherever we are, um, to remind us that we're not isolated, to um, tell the stories that, that allow us to remember that this is a deeply human experience in, in all of its complexity. I am so comforted, I think, about some of my students reaching out saying, you know, I'm just not able to focus on that paper or that you asked me to write or... <laughs> I'm, I am um, I am so distracted. My energy is flowing to caring for my community, not to studying the taxonomy of mosses. We are pulled in so many directions, and I think the writer can validate all of those directions and those human impulses to be asking, where should I best spend my energy? But I think relevant to our um, earlier words, Rob, about um, imagining and working toward the future that we want on the other side of this experience, that is the particular role of, of the writer is to, is to help um, imagine. Um, and you know that, that word imagination, um, I'm often reminded of a Mohawk colleague of mine, Dan Longboat, who, who um, 
breaks apart that idea of, say, imagining the future. We sometimes, in, in Western thinking, we often think that imagination is in our heads, that it's a fantasy somehow bounded by our own skulls or, or, or psyches. But Dan says that in the Haudenosaunee way of thinking about imagination is that imagination is the collective understanding of all beings and that what we imagine is when we're connecting to that collective understanding. And if we are to see ourselves through these narrows, to carry with us these seeds to the other side of this experience, I think writers who help us tap that imagination um, of which we are a part, um, that is a particular gift that, that writers might have. Robin, thank you. Um... I'm just going to clear up a factual question in the chat, uh, which is uh, Anne Shippey would love to hear exactly what medicinal properties we were referring to. Um, so I should say that dandelions have a powerful diuretic. Um, and so pissant lit, the French phrase, wet the bed, piss the bed. And there are many um, uh, impolite English folk names along those lines as well. Uh, we're lucky to have as part of the audience this evening, David Abram, whose books <laughs> Spell of the Sensuous was given to me. I can remember the exact uh, uh, square meter of, of tarmac I was standing on when it was pressed into my hand. And a hugely powerful book for me, Spell of the Sensuous. And David is here and he asks uh, a really fascinating question, which um, I'm going to read because reading David aloud is, is, is a privilege as well. Uh, so here, here it is. Those of you who want to follow it, it's in the chat about 25 messages up. So David asks you, Robin, uh, is there something inherent in traditionally oral cultures, the cultures of face-to-face -face storytelling, that necessarily entails this kind of intimacy with the local earth? something the written word can certainly extend as in your word as in your work robin but which the written word can also easily interrupt and dispel given that writing can bring increasing abstraction um, enabling stories to readily abstract themselves from the face to face and the face to place is it possible that writing also seems to swivel meaning out of the more than human exchange into an exclusively human circle of discourse such that other animals, plants, mountains and rivers no longer seem to speak. And here is the final question really of this fascinating thought. So can we write in service to replenishing oral culture? Thank you, David. Wow, thank you. Um, what a powerful question and observation and I too want to say that the spell of the sensuous was is continues to be a touchstone for me I think the way I want to answer that that question um, is that I as as someone who loves language and who loves the written word and the act of writing I also worry that our total dependence upon the written word is um, creates a barrier between ourselves and the living world and I think in some place in that in that question or maybe it was a quote associated with it is that this idea of the written language as being uniquely human um, perhaps um, um, 
with, that would be a whole nother interesting question about these <laughs> right, which has been fascinating me, arborographia. Um, but um, really this idea that the word, particularly the written word, can um, cut off our sensing of the world, that we come to know through words, as opposed to we come to know through the smell of the bark of that tree, or we come to know by the sensation that we have on our skin when we enter a certain place. If we can't put words to them, we tend to dismiss them because we are so word-centric. Um, and, um, and I think we deprive ourselves potentially of these other ways of knowing, which are, are perhaps our, our, our uh, animal gifts, but I wouldn't restrict them just, just to animals either. But um, yeah, I, so that would be my reflection on that, is that um, coming to know the land and, and the beings without words is a powerful experience that, that I think probably many listeners have, have tried to achieve, to banish words from your head when you're interacting um, with, with, the, with the living world. And, and you come to know differently and you come to know different things than when words are in the way. So it's a, it's a, it's a both and. Um, yes, I love language, but I worry. I worry that by, by being so word-centric, we're really missing something. Do I should as an aside, I think about, um, I have little kids in my life, as I know you do, and probably many listeners do, and before they are literate, right, they, their observations and their engagement with the world, where, where the written word, anyway, is not a barrier, are, are so spacious and colorful, and, and I can't help but think that literacy is, um, truncates that in some way. I, I sometimes think of that language that we all speak before we can write uh, as I call it childish, not not English, not um, but but childish, and we are all fluent in it <laughs> at one point, and then we, um, we 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 forget how to speak and and to read childish as well. You also put me in mind of Nan Shepherd's wonderful line in in the Living Mountain, her great philosophical exploration of and, and with the Cairngorm Mountains. She says, if if I had other senses, there are other things that I would know. There is there is no limit to to the knowledge except that imposed by the sensorium that we have evolved. Um, we, we're coming to the end, although the questions and, and uh, responses and gratitude above all are, are pouring in. So I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question because it's come up twice in um, in the Q&A, if I may, and it's about pronouns. So Hui Ying B. Dandelion asks, uh, and Tara Shapersky also asks a version of this, um, uh, thinking about de decolonizing language. Hui Ying is, is speaking as a trans non-binary person. Um, Ta Tara has been trying to use different pronouns in, 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 in her speaking and her writing in recognition of, of non-human others. So uh, I'll, I'll ask the question in the phrase that, that, that Hui Ying gives it. Um, can you expand more on these, these pronouns, uh, animacy and inanimacy rather than masculine and feminine, 
and whether there are any other current efforts to to grow that use she says i just want to understand it more thank you yeah thank you for for that really good question because the exploration of that notion of how we might move into a grammar of animacy my my thinking and experimentation with that has evolved since since breeding sweetgrass for sure um and I think that we can look to other language systems, of course, as models for how they handle um, that. But what I've been really playing with is to say, well, how might we, inspired by, by um, indigenous languages of animacy around the world, how might we incorporate and, and animate English and, and help it it moved from its fixation with the thingness of the world and to the transition to the beingness of the world. And, and the experiment that I've been doing with that is, is with the Potawatomi language um, and where we don't really have pronouns. We have verbs that imply pronouns in, in, in a sense. So it's not a, a, an easy transition, but um, instead of saying he and she, and it, particularly in a world where where those things don't necessarily make sense, um, I've been fascinated by um, the potential of the pronoun ki, ki, um, and I've floated this in a in a couple of places. You might look in a um, a piece in Orion magazine called Speaking of Nature, which talks about this. Uh, ki is um, is the little phoneme at the end of the Potawatomi word aki, which means the earth. Um, and um, it is related to a word that my um, uh, late mentor and elder Stuart King talked about this word, bemadesi aki, which means a beautiful which means a being of a good being of of, of the earth, um, and so could we say that little sound key? Could we slip it right in next to he, she, key, and it, um, and use it for for beingness um, without rules, without all kinds of grammatical imposition to say when you feel like you need to convey the animacy and the relationship of a being, speak of it as 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 key, not not as it. And then one of the things that I, I, I love about that 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 sound of that word is that in English um, we have a way of speaking of this state, um, and it's by taking the word key and adding an end to it in the English so that we can speak of kin, that we speak of living beings as our relatives, um, that those dandelions are kin are growing up in the lawn, um, mm -hmm. not, not its. Um, and, uh, and it transforms the relationship when we start to think of them in our everyday speech as as our relatives. So it's a thought experiment that I'm passing around to give it a try, see whether <laughs> what my students said about it is, it's awkward, learning a new grammar is hard, but they said, it makes me feel happy. Well, there's a, there's a great deal of admiration and enthusiasm for it in the, in the chat. And it seems to me that this, again, this moment we're living through has been one of making kin newly. Again, we have, we have, we have generated connections with people across time and space, but also just across the road, who we may not have spoken to for, for years. And this, this is, there has been kin made in this time, and that is one of its, 
shadow goods. Um, there's so much gratitude coming in from, from all over the world for you, Robin. The night has fallen here while we've been talking, uh, but um, I, I, I'm lit by a globe, uh, which is why my face is now, <laughs> is now, is now glowing um, in, in the only light that there is. But it's been an absolute joy for me uh, and for thousands of other people. Um, I, I, I would love it if you could read to us for a minute or so, and then Chelsea will come on immediately after that just to say goodbyes. But thank you on behalf of, of thousands of people from around the world, Robin. This has been a joy for me to be with you. Um, to me, it's the kind of strengthening and, and uplift that I know I need in this time and real embodiment of, of our connection. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Emergence. Um, mm. And uh, let me close with, oops, where did it go? Um, sorry, I have all my marks here. Well, I'll, I'll read this one. Um, this comes from the chapter about the giveaway, um, the ceremony of our people in, in which we um, give, uh, give away in honor of, um, of gifts that have been given to us. The moral covenant of reciprocity calls us to honor our responsibilities for all that we have been given, for all that we have taken. It's our turn now, long overdue. Let us hold a giveaway for Mother Earth, spread our blankets out for her and pile them high with gifts of our own making. Imagine the books, the paintings, the poems, the clever machines, the compassionate acts, the transcendent ideas, the perfect tools, the fierce defense of all that has been given. Gifts of mind, hands, heart, voice, and vision, all offered up on behalf of the earth. Whatever our gift, we are called to give it and dance for the renewal of the world. Thank you and um, such gratitude to all of you. Thank you, Robin. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapeya Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found, including Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.